Hello and welcome to MDD's next claims interview. Now this is a claims interview with a twist because I'm not talking to one of the market's claims leaders today. I'm talking to somebody who's been very involved in help publicize issues and solutions around the London market claims industry. So today we have with us Jeremy Burgess from the Insurance Network. Good morning, Jeremy. Morning, Barry. How are you? Very well. It's a sunny but cold day here in Oxfordshire. I'm looking forward to uh, a really good conversation with you. So let's start at the beginning. Tell me about the start of your career. So when I first started work, it was in a human reliability consultant, which is around risk and looking at the way that industrial accidents happened, mainly in the oil and gas industries, the rail industry and things like that. And they ran a series of courses to promote the human factors in accidents, industry accidents. And I was employed to put those courses together and then market them and run them. And off the back of that, I got some experience of live events, how they worked, what the dynamics were. And from that, I then went to London, got a job in a big conference company, and I kind of cut my teeth producing larger industry events for a range of uh, industries. I did logistics events out of Amsterdam and Istanbul. I ran events for HR directors when the internet was being born and there was a huge disruption in the recruitment of of people. So I, I was involved in that. And then I I thought I might be able to do it myself. So I went on a course, an MBA course at the university. Well, it was the Guildhall University in those days. And I did an MBA just to give myself a bit of experience before setting up a, a, a business and meeting some people and just giving myself a bit of confidence. And once I'd done that, as part of the dissertation, the final piece of work, I really studied the way that the internet had disrupted the area of business communications and what the role of a conference was now in the age when information was free, publications were basically becoming all online. So there was no need to go to conferences to find information anymore. The reason to go to conferences was to network with peers and benchmark your ideas and hear innovative talks and but then be able to discuss the content of those things and that was a big shift in the media world and it posed some real big challenges for those traditional conference companies who had traditionally just put a big ticket on attending a two-day conference where you could find out business information so off the back of that i then set up the insurance network well back in the day it was called middleton burgess but as part of that was the insurance network and and we started to run some events so yeah so that's how i started out Okay. For someone who's focused very much on claims and insurance, you know, hearing about how you came to touch the market is is quite interesting to me. So you've talked very briefly there about the insurance network and working with Phil Middleton to build the, the business. How's it going? Are You've been around for quite some time now. From where I'm sitting, it's pretty much the leading networking event organization that we come across so tell us how's it going it's been an interesting couple of years for anybody who works in live events because obviously with the pandemic in march 2020 essentially the the rug was pulled from underneath us and we could not run our business 
So it was a very challenging time. And as I look back and I reflect on that time, it seems like logical decisions and steps that we took, but actually it was very frantic and there were a lot of decisions to be made very rapidly. Uh, The major decision was, what do we do with the business? And, And there were two choices. Either we take the furlough on and we basically shut it down, mothball it and you know, hope to God that in six months' time that the, the pandemic goes away, we can rekindle the events that we already had on, on the books and, uh, and off we go. Or did we think it was going to be a longer play than a few months? We opted for the, the second option and we thought it was going to be longer than uh, a few months' time. I think we had a window in our minds that if it was six months, we'd be able to move the events that we already had booked and received money for, and we'd be able to move those into that autumn. But we thought it would be longer than that. So we took a punt, essentially, an educated guess that it would be longer. And so we said, right, we're not going to furlough anybody. We're going to carry on, but what, what are we going to do? And so as a company, as a team, we all got together and we started to say, well, let's just do some events, online virtual events for the industry that would help them. And we didn't do it for money. We just thought if we could help, we've got a community of people, we've got the technology. There's a lot of stress at the moment in the industry, especially as people were trying to enable work from home and, and things like that. So we just saw an opportunity for us to just help really. So that's what we did. We just put together some online events to see if we could get an audience. We could get an audience. And then we started to get inquiries about, oh, we'd like to sponsor those sessions, or we'd like to run a a panel session on on X or Y or claims or whatever it was. And so that gave us then the confidence to go, okay, well, maybe we can take the live events that we got scheduled for 2020 and turn them into virtual events, still deliver value to sponsors, still produce something that is enjoyable for attendees to go to that would really help people with the the unique challenges that they were facing at at that time. So it's been an interesting couple of years. And as I said, they seem like logical steps now, but but they weren't. They were tough decisions to make, not just from a business point of view, but, you know, from our employees point of view and our customers point of view. But we are where we are now as we're coming back to live events and I think because of those decisions that we made, the brand is stronger than it was previously. I think we now have a broader range of offerings, both virtual and real world. And actually, it's kind of more exciting than it has been for a long time, because as, as we come back to real world, we can take all the lessons that we've got from virtual, all the little innovations that we've we've had to kind of take on board and come up with and hopefully move things forward. So yeah, it's going very well now. It's been a tough couple of years but hopefully fingers crossed it's looking good oh i mean that's great to hear because my sense is whether people really understand it or not an organization like yours is really important to the marketplace it it does enable networking it does bring issues that need to be discussed and without a company like yours i don't think half the important conversations that we need to have actually take place. My experience generally is that insurers are very busy getting on and doing their own thing. And actually, they don't really like talking about what they're up to, because they're worried that somebody's going to steal their ideas or get competitive edge. But in another way, they do need to talk to each other, they do need to understand what the big issues are that are out there. And the more they listen, the better they will be able to produce the solutions that they need for the future. So, you know, there's a bit of a balance there. And so, as I say, an organization like yours is really important 
to enable the conversation, but also that important listening that needs to take place. So I, I just want to go back in time a little bit and, and just ask a little bit more about how did the insurance network come to be? Tell us about the history. Yeah. So I mentioned that I did an MBA and, and as part of that I was looking at the dynamics of, of business events and, and why people were going there. And so I, I met Phil Middleton, we worked together and we both decided we thought we had an idea that we could produce smaller evening events at that time where we could get a panel of very senior people to come along and basically just discuss one question, one strategic question facing the industry. And back in the day, we thought that we would have lots of networks. So we set up two networks to start off with, the insurance network, which we're talking about uh, today, and then the HR directors network. So one is a vertical and one's a horizontal. And actually for a long time, the HR directors network was the larger of the two. There, there was a lot of appetite for HR directors to meet, as you were just saying, for the, those very reasons. And actually in insurance, you know, the change was very slow. You know, there was not really much talk about technology and things like that. So it was a kind of more of a, a slow burn that all changed with the financial crisis because nobody really wants to buy HR systems when you're when you're sacking people. So, so the HR directors network kind of went by the wayside. But at that same period of time, the insurance network started to take off, and the reason for that was that we were seeing more and more change that was creeping in and being established in other industries starting to come into insurance. And so Phil and myself had a discussion and said, listen, I think we should do a technology conference. And this was 10 or 12 years ago. I think we should do a technology conference because we've got a feeling that technology has got a big role to play in this industry. And, and at that time, nobody was talking about technology. And I think we managed to get 30 or 40 people to an event to say how technology might drive change and, and innovation in the industry as a whole, not not just uh, London. Over time, that grew and grew and grew. And then all of a sudden, after about four or five years, it just exploded. And people suddenly realized that the technology that was shifting industry dynamics in other sectors was going to be a big issue in insurance. And not just a big issue, a massive opportunity. <clears throat> and so I think we were, we were a little bit lucky to get ahead of the, the wave in that one. And we've managed to build that technology conference out into two technology conferences. So we've got Tintech London Market, um, and we've also got Tintech, which is more kind of more retail and SME. And then we've got the London Market Claims Conference that that we spoke about back in the day when you came along to one of our conferences and suggested that actually we could do with a conference specifically for London market issues. So it's been interesting to see how that market's developed. And by that, I mean the insurance kind of technology space. I think we're at the really early stages of the way that technology is going to shape and change the in, the industry. And I'm very excited actually right now about the opportunities for insurers and brokers and actually everyone across the value chain to deliver both an improved client experience, but also find those efficiencies that we've been talking about for decades. I really feel we're at a tipping point now. Well, I think you're doing a great job and it, and it feels like quite a journey for you. And touching on a word you used, innovation, I think as long as you continue to innovate in terms of what you're doing, how you're moving forward, I think you'll be absolutely fine. Tell me, what do you enjoy most about running the insurance network? 
I would say that it is meeting the, the people in the industry. I'm constantly amazed how much people are willing to help you and spare their time and give you their insights and thoughts in order to create the, the events that, that we do. Without people you know, speaking to me and taking part in a research call or filling in a, a survey, we'd be lost. But actually, I think people realized, as you were saying there, Barry, that what the conferences and events do is provide a space away from your kind of day-to-day -day job to think about the macro strategic challenges that, that are facing your organization and and organizations across the, the industry, uh, and also to catch up with people and to benchmark those ideas. So for me, I think the most enjoyable part is speaking to people, listening to, to their issues and concerns, and then coming up with something that will help them. You know, when they get back to the office, they'll get a few nuggets. I'm not saying everyone rocks up and they leave going, oh, well, that's that, that's sorted. But, but they certainly leave with a few ideas, I hope. So that's a, certainly a very enjoyable part. Yeah, and I'm sure people do. So do, do you think that the insurance network is helping the market adapt to client needs and, and very much acting as a change agent? Is that what you feel? So I actually fundamentally believe that the purpose of the insurance network is to drive positive change in the industry. And that, for me, is kind of the rule of thumb about whether we do an activity or not. Is the outcome of what we do going to enable positive change in the in the industry and if it's not then what's the point you know mm. if somebody comes along with a large check and says oh can you do this well if it doesn't fit with those values as us as an organization then we're not going to really believe in it people are going to see through it and, and actually it's not going to add any value so i absolutely believe that you know, we can be a change agent. We we can't change anything. We're not, we're not big enough. We're only a small organization. But what we can do is provide the forums where people could come together, collaborate, have those discussions, and then hopefully go away and enable change in their organization. So, yeah, I fundamentally believe we are. I've got this view. If you look back over the last two decades, there has been a lot of change. People will say, well, technology has improved. People are better qualified now, blah, blah, blah. I think the thing that's really changed in the last 20 years is the culture around the industry. And that's being driven by individual companies looking at their own cultures and saying, what do we need to do? How do we need to behave? What is it we're trying to do here? And position themselves in such a way that they're not only delivering great value to customers, but the way they work internally, the way they treat people, the way they treat their clients has just improved massively. And I think that's been the biggest single thing I can see in the last 20 years in terms of real improvement. I know you're going to tell me technology, but culturally, this marketplace has changed massively from where it was 20 years ago. I think I would agree with that. But I would caveat it by saying I think it's early days and we're nowhere near reaching uh, a point where we can kind of pat ourselves on the back and go, okay, well, that's done. If you look at the amount of women in senior leadership roles, if you look at the black and Asian uh, or minorities in the market, there's a lot of work to be done there. I, I also think just diversity of thought, you know, getting away from hiring people because they look like you and think like you. That to me is still 
a, a big problem. So I, I agree that, it, yes, it does feel different. It, yes, people are talking about it, but I think there is still quite a lot of work to be done. I think one of the other big challenges as well is going to be talent. And, and the war for talent. And we've seen that in the kind of the way that people have, have resigned and, and got other jobs. And, and there's been a massive wage kind of inflation going on. And I can talk mainly here from experience around technology and, and operations, but I'm sure it's across the, the board. And so that's going to mean that the industry needs to get hold and get a grip of how it's going to attract that next generation of, of talent in. And, and I think there is a few things that can be done that would help that. Firstly, I think there's the language that is used in the London market in particular is very off-putting. You know, DXC, exchanging, central services, the Bureau, you know, what is it? <laughs> what does it do? Mm. Can mm. somebody please tell me? Three-letter acronyms for all sorts of things. The IMRC, the... the <laughs> decom that just you know come on mm. you know we've got to get over this and, and i think you're right i think 10 or 15 years ago it was a badge of honor to know what these acronyms meant and you know let's put another acronym on on something uh, to make it sound more complicated than it is but language for me is really important and I, I think quite a lot of work could be done around that to simplify the industry make it visible to the next generation and, and trying to track them in rather than putting barriers up by, by saying, what the hell does that mean? You know, I, I think we both see things the same way. And, and my point very much was centered around the fact that there needed to be so much change around the culture. Let's pick on a simple thing like, you know, the drinking culture that existed in the London markets. So my point is that a lot has changed in the last 20 years, but it needed to change from where it was and as you say, we are still on a big journey here forward. So I'm sort of excited to see where it goes. I definitely feel the level of professionalism has improved, but there is still quite some way to go. And I'll, I'll agree with you on that. Tell us, is there anything in particular you enjoy about being in the middle of the London market? Yeah, I mean, right now, I already touched on it. I think technology is both driving a lot of change, but enabling businesses to come up with new things. So I've been really impressed by some of the innovations around cyber and those new risks, how companies are approaching that. If you look at the Beasley digital entity, how they've really just gone, okay, this is a segment of the market. We want to look at that from a completely customer-focused lens and then develop a whole business model around delivering value there. I think that's really exciting. And I just see so much opportunity in the market. And I, I just come back to your kind of culture bit. So for me, what is starting to change, and I'm not going to say there's been a mindset shift, but I think there has been a small nudge in a positive direction around the role that technology can play in enabling your organization. So let me just give an example of that. So I would say three to four years ago, if you came along to Tencent on the market and you heard an innovative talk from someone from a different sector talking about how they're using data and analytics to, I, I don't know, something in the retail space, they can able to preempt demand and, and things like that. People go, oh, that's really interesting, but that's nothing to do with us. I mean, you know, we, mm. you know, we're completely separate. We're a highly regulated market. We we don't really work in those ways. We're going to extend value chain, blah, 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 blah. It'll never work, right? Mm. Very interesting, but actually it'll never really impact us. That has changed and it was changing slowly before 
the pandemic, but has been absolutely supercharged by the pandemic because people have been forced to embrace technology in a way that they never had to before to enable work from home here. And so a lot of those, I'm going to say naysayers, but you know what I mean, who were just going, no, that'll never work, suddenly have been freed of the of the baggage because they've had to adopt it. And I think now I feel it at the events, there's an excitement to go, right, how can we build on on this? We know we can do it and we can do it rapidly and at, at speed, at scale. How can we take the lessons that we've learned over the pandemic and then roll them forward to, to positive change? So yeah, that's, that's what we're feeling at the moment anyway. That all makes sense to me. I remember talking to someone uh, about a year and a half ago about ESG and uh, they were a broker in the marketplace and they said, uh, no, ESG has got nothing to do with us, Barry. You're misunderstanding. ESG is all about how brokers invest in companies and their approach to those investments. It's got nothing to do with the world of insurance broking. And obviously we had a bit of an argument about it because I said, no, no, no. ESG is about our way of life. You know, it, you might not feel it at the moment, but trust me, it's coming down the pipes. So, and so here we are today. I'm not saying I'm clever or anything like that. But, you know, I think government has been rather clever here because they pushed down from the top on big corporate world, big corporate insurers. This is what you need to go and do. And of course, they are now pushing down to all their supply chains and it's now very much across the whole of the marketplace. And if there's somebody, if there's some insurance organization out there, whether it's a broker, a adjuster, a forensic accountant or whoever, who's not talking about ESG, well, they need to wise up and start looking at this, you know, very quickly because it's going to catch up with them. And if they're not ready and prepared, they're going to have real challenges about being the supplier of services in, in the future. I agree with that, Barry. And, and I'm just going to give a shout out to the Camelot network because we partnered with them to put together a kind of an ESG forum, which is an online <clears throat> forum where we're just collecting user cases for best practice around the ESG agenda. And no one's taken any money for this. We're just doing it because, as you say, this is this is to do with the, the future uh, mm. of the world, if, so long as Putin doesn't blow it up first. But, it, you know, it's important stuff. And so we should all get behind that. So, yeah, I just want to echo your, well, your thoughts. I, I... I think the shout out should definitely go to David Clamp, who runs that, who's a really good guy. I've been along to a couple of his events. He's another terrific guy doing some really excellent work. And if you haven't heard about him or Camelot, do go and have a look um, and see what they're up to. Because again, they're generating some great ideas in the marketplace. So just a final piece on, on the insurance network. Have you got any sort of plans or ideas that you're, you're looking at to implement for the future that you can tell the audience about? So plans for the, the future. I have talked a lot about technology, but actually for me, the most exciting thing is the way that humans and technology will kind of interact that for me that sweet spot about yeah you know, how you do your job and how you deliver that client experience that that for me is very exciting so so we're doing quite a lot of work around ai and robotics and, and things like that and i think we shouldn't underestimate the the power of, of this technology to really transform roles and people's working lives you spend a lot of time at work and if you're doing a dull, repetitive, manual job, 
firstly, you're not going to be very happy and probably you're going to make some pretty goddamn awful mistakes. So if we can give those kind of repetitive, boring, mundane tasks to computers and give the value-added work to humans, I think that's just a a win-win. So we're doing a lot of work around there. I think also just picking up in terms of the the claims space, London market claims, obviously the one that we put together, Barry, all those years ago, I think there's a massive opportunity in claims to almost go back to basics and say, what is our role here? What's the purpose of claims? And how can we make sure that every step of the way we are delivering value to that customer and client? And for me, it's a lot around communications. I think it's been lacking before. It's been hindered by unconnected, poor technology, a disparate value chain. But I really feel it can be brought together and we can put clients really central to the the service we deliver. So yeah, there's a couple of things there that really excited me for the future. Now you've had to listen to a lot of very sad claims people talk at some of your events, very boring, (laughs) you know, they don't have much of a life, but I'm guessing you have formed a bit of an opinion about what does make a great claims offering. So what do you think makes a great claims offering? I'll start by saying I'm not a claims or for that matter, insurance expert, or in a technical sense, I've got a good understanding about the issues and challenges facing organizations in the delivery of claim service. But I do feel that in the past, there's not been enough conversation about the customer or the client. And and I think what's happened over the last few years is that the conversation has shifted towards how is what we are doing going to deliver more value to our customers and clients? Is this process that we are doing for some internal reporting metric actually adding any value? Does anybody read this stuff? You know, so I I think there has been uh, a shift in that. And I think that if they can continue having those conversations, then I think incrementally the claims offering will get better. And the way that that will be seen is through clients actually talking to the industry in a positive manner. And Barry, you know, we had risk managers coming along and they were pretty spiky conversations that we managed to bring to the industry that I genuinely think they did not know how those clients and customers were feeling. And and, and so if we can continue on that road, I do believe we'll deliver you know, positive change, both for insurers, brokers and clients, which is a win-win-win. Well, win. Well, I mean, you you know, my perspective on it has always been get some clients in the room. You know, people will find that really interesting. Okay, I was going to talk about greatest influences on people's careers. So is there anybody you want to give a shout out to who who's really affected you in your career, helped you? I don't think there is one person that I can point to that says, oh my, oh my gosh, that was a complete tipping point in my thinking around it. I think there's been... Lots of people, lots of influential books, actually, uh, especially when you start out to to run your own business, you're you're constantly fishing around for for ideas, for validation that what you're doing is not complete, you know, financial suicide. Recently, Simon Sinek has kind of piqued my interest on the TED Talks, just the way he so elegantly talks about our business to not our generation, but a younger generation that's coming Mm. through. And that resonates with me and gives me ideas. But I think my one lesson is don't stop listening to people and network, you know, as much as you can. Because if I think back to the pandemic, if I didn't have my in inverted commas, Rolodex of people to call, it would have been even more challenging than than it was. So, 
well, well said. We're going to get to the fun bit in a minute, Jeremy. But just before we do, are there any sort of high points or low points in your career that you want to mention? High points? I, I would still say setting up the business, that's a rite of passage that if you haven't done it and you're thinking about doing it, I would say go for it. Obviously, yeah. do the research and all that kind of thing. But it's a little bit like going to university for the first time. You are literally on your own without the inverted commas safety net of a large corporate company. So I was pretty proud of that. Low points, I think when we had to get rid of the strategic HR network, although it had been unprofitable for a number of years, we tried to make it work, but it was just the wrong time. You know, the financial crisis, there was just no money around to make it happen. But I've got to say that I I took a lot out of that decision because it's probably one of the toughest decisions you've got to take, you know, you invest seven to eight years in something and eventually you've got to admit that it hasn't worked. Mm. Well, actually, what that did do is free up a whole load of time and energy to put into something else. So for me, it taught me that you've got to look at the range of activities that you're doing and you've got to really focus in on what is delivering value and not just financial value. I mean, you know, value in, in a holistic sense okay and finally sort of on the work front any, any particular aspirations for the future in general apart from world domination but putin <laughs> seems to be decent at that no not really i'm very happy with where we are as an organization uh, and we have a strategic roadmap for the next kind of three years to build on the events i'm just excited to get back to real world events to be honest cool so let's get away from boring work. Let's talk about other stuff now. Outside of work, what would you enjoy doing most? So I have discovered tennis. Oh, tennis. So I about three years ago, there was a little poster up at my gym saying, do you want to learn how to play tennis? And it was, I think it was only 30 quid for six lessons or something. I thought, I'll give it a go. And I found out I absolutely love it. I'm not very good at it, but I, I love it. <laughs> So that's kind of been my latest thing. I do love a fast car as well. So, um, yeah, I'm a bit partial to, to those. Oh, we, should, we share a common like there. So I, I quite like tennis, but it's when you have to serve. I always think I look like a complete idiot trying to serve. But other than that, you know, the rest of the tennis game is not too bad. Have you got a particular fast car in the carriage? I've had a range of fast cars. I've got a BMW, which I picked up last weekend. So I haven't really got to know it yet. But but yeah, it's a beautiful looking. But I've been very good and only keeping it for weekends. Oh, so. <laughs> uh, sounds great. Yeah. Sounds great. We'll, we'll talk about cars a little bit later. So now time for our quick test. If you know the rules, I'm looking for short, sharp answers. So here we go. Rugby or football? Football is the right shaped ball. Good answer. TV or radio? Radio. You can imagine anything in your own brain in radio. <laughs> Excellent answer. BBC or ITV? Uh, BBC because they have the best football commentary. Okay. Good answer. Okay. Meat or veg? I would say meat and veg, but if I'm choosing, I think I would go meat. That's an honest answer, I can tell. Work or holidays? I'm going to go holidays because it feels like I haven't been on one for years. Well, I haven't. <laughs> you are so honest. There's so many claims, men and women, who pretend that it's work, but we all know it's holidays. Oh, challenging one. Lloyd's or companies? I'm going to go Lloyd's, and mainly because of the blueprint too. I think there's a bit of traction around it. I'm just interested to see how it's going to develop. I know both, but... But I'm going to okay. say it's been led by Lloyd. Okay. My favourite one, 1980s or 2020s? 2020s. 
No, that's not the right answer. I can't remember the 1980s, and it was almost as scary as it was today. I can say the 2020s, yeah. <laughs> okay. And finally, maybe I know what the answer is going to be, Harley or Porsche? Uh, Porsche. Okay. I yeah, refer I you back to the answer I gave earlier. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, Jeremy, you've been great. You've given us a very good idea about you as a person, your business. Tell us, if you'd not ended up being involved in what you're doing today, knowing what you do know, what sort of job do you think you would have ended up in or preferred to have ended up in? So I think that the lesson that I've learned is your business structure. So events is a funny business to be in because there's very, very high fixed costs. And so you have to do an awful lot of work to get over the hill before you you make a profit. And there's a, a whole load of risk, as we've just found out over the last two, three years, not just in all the usual stuff, like is anyone going to buy a ticket and this is the marketing work thing and all, all that kind of thing. So I think if I was going to do it again, I think I would for perhaps opportunities that are more scalable, have got kind of lower fixed costs and 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 see if I could actually build a business that I'm very happy with this business, but it'd be really nice to have something that was perhaps scalable, international, global, something like that. But, you know, there's still time. I'm not giving up yet, Barry. Not a footballer, not a tennis player, more of the same. I don't think so. If I was going to be a sports person, I'd be a swimmer. I love swimming. <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm actually quite good at swimming. I, and I would have enjoyed, you know, you don't get all the riches and rewards and all that kind of thing, but I, I could see myself, you know, winning if I was a bit taller. Mm. As everybody knows in the industry, I'm the shortest man in the industry. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah. I would have definitely been the shortest man in the swimming Gala. Well, my grandmother was a, a national champion swimmer uh, and she wasn't very tall. So there is hope for you. Look, Jeremy, I think you've been brilliant this morning. Your passion, your professionalism, you've got a really important role to play in the industry. And it's been great having you on here. So I'd just like to wish you every success for the future. I actually think like you, there's so much more to come. So there's so many more areas to look at, to improve. I think innovation has definitely got to be the key in terms of the way you're thinking and how you engage with clients to find out, you know, about the next area that needs to be addressed or talked about. So as I say, all the very best for the future, Jeremy. Been great having you on this morning. Thanks, Barry. Been great to be here. 